Weakness is not something that is celebrated in our world. In fact, we do everything that we can to avoid weakness. We spend hours in the gym to preserve and protect physical strength. We go to school, read books, go to seminars in order to develop and protect our intellectual strength. We spend long hours at work and maybe even take on extra jobs in order to pursue financial strength. A certain NFL team, which I will leave unnamed, spent a high draft pick on a young kicker with a strong leg, assuming he would be able to make longer kicks than someone with a weaker leg. Everything in our world tells us that weakness is bad and that we should do everything we can to avoid it. But have you considered the possibility that weakness might actually be a good thing? How about the even more radical suggestion that weakness is something that we should be content to have, take pleasure in, and even boast about? Why would anyone be okay with weakness? And how is it even possible to find pleasure in it? I invite you this morning to 2 Corinthians, the letter of 2 Corinthians, chapter number 12. 2 Corinthians 12. And over the last few years, as I've had opportunities to preach, I've been working through this letter. Last week was an exception. So, just so you're aware, that this isn't a chapter that was randomly picked today. It's just the next in the, in the progress of um, what I've been doing as I've been able to preach. I very much enjoyed progressing through this letter. But one of the downsides is that there's a, lot, a, a bit of coherence is lost as time passes between sermons. It was July when we concluded chapter 11. And so a brief reminder of what's been going up going on up to this point, I trust, will be helpful. Paul started the church in Corinth, but after he left, he caught wind that some in the church were rejecting him. And that really, really bothered him. Not because he wanted to be liked by everyone, but because in rejecting him as the messenger of reconciliation with God, Paul knew that they were rejecting the message of reconciliation. Paul was also aware that some were rejecting him as a true apostle because of the influence of the impressive and charismatic teachers who had come into the church. These guys looked really good and they sounded really good. But they were teaching a false gospel and causing the Corinthians to question Paul's legitimacy as an apostle. So, so this letter of 2 Corinthians is Paul's effort to defend himself and his ministry. He's trying to show them why he really is legitimate and why his message is true. In chapter 11 and verse 1, he begins what has been called Paul's fool speech, where he really starts to play the false teacher's game. Dripping with irony and sarcasm, Paul's point to the Corinthians is that if you can put up with the false teachers who are truly fools, then you should be able to put up with me when I play the fool. And I need to do so in order to expose the foolishness of my opponents. And one of the foolish tactics of the false teachers was boasting. And that had very much affected the Corinthian church. 
Now, Paul always sought to follow the example of Christ, but this desperate situation demanded desperate measures, and he was forced to temporarily follow the examples of the false teachers in hope that the Corinthians would listen to him. And so, starting in verse 16 of chapter 11, Paul begins to boast, but he bends over backwards to make it abundantly clear that he does not want to stoop to the false teacher's level of boasting. It's something he must do in order to gain a hearing. One of the things Paul's opponents boasted about was their ethnic pedigree. And so Paul responded with foolish boasting of his own pedigree in verses 21 and 22. And then down in verse 30 of chapter 11, Paul says, If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. And he proceeded to boast about how he escaped the city of Damascus hiding in a basket, which is actually pretty humiliating and not something one with power would have to do. Continuing then in verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. The Corinthians were enamored with the more electrifying displays of spiritual experience. And the false teachers were more than willing to feed their appetite for spiritually thrilling visions. The church ate it up. And there is no doubt that the false teachers' accounts of supernatural revelations gave a boost to their authority and caused them to question Paul's authority. We can just hear them saying something like, what visions has Paul claimed to see in recent years? He can go on and on about how he saw the resurrected Lord on his domestic road, road conversion, but what has been his experience of real spiritual vitality this past week? And if he has had any worthwhile visions, why hasn't he talked about them? So Paul continues then, to boast as a fool. Picking up in verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which, no, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. As one commentator observed, Paul moves from the embarrassing descent to escape the hands of men to an exhilarating ascent into the presence of God. Paul's beginning of this account in the third person shows his humility and reluctance for them to think it was his experience. But it becomes clear pretty soon that he was the guy who was taken up into heaven. Fourteen years ago would put this experience of Paul into the silent decade of his ministry, probably somewhere between 35 and 45 AD. We don't know a lot about that time period, other than he was in Syria and Cilicia, and had already begun his ministry of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Jews of this period often spoke of multiple heavens, but they did not agree on how many. 
we suspect that Paul is using here a three-heaven scheme which accords with biblical cosmology. The first heaven being the atmosphere, the second being the stars, and the third, the abode of God. Paul here equates the third heaven with paradise, which was the highest spiritual realm where one encounters the very presence of God. He doesn't know if he was taken up like Enoch, body and all, or only in spirit, temporarily leaving his body behind. But Paul clearly doesn't really think that that matters. We can certainly speculate on what he may have seen, but Paul only references here what he heard. And whether or not he was capable of putting into words what he heard, he wasn't allowed to do so. So, the benefit of this experience was only for Paul. It had no value to the church because he couldn't even tell them about it. So why, we may ask, did God give Paul this awesome experience if it was not to be shared? Calvin suggests, this thing happened for Paul's own sake. For a man who had awaiting him troubles hard enough to break a thousand hearts, needed to be strengthened in a special way to keep him from giving way and to help him persevere undaunted. We, of course, can't know for sure, but that certainly seems to be a likely reason. Well, as we reflect on Paul's trip to paradise, I think there's two dangers here that we ought to seek to avoid. The first is a desire to impress others. Desire to impress others. Look at verse 6. Paul says, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. See, the false teachers in Corinth had no problem sharing their visions and revelations because it made them look really good. And they were all about impressing others. Paul had an experience here that blew their very best out of the water. I I mean, this could not be topped. So why, Paul, don't you tell them what happened? Why not drop the mic and shut these guys up for good? Why not write a book? Go on a tour leading seminars. Five steps to your own rapture. Why not post it on Facebook along with 27 pictures so all your friends would know what he experienced and could share it with all their friends? I mean, isn't that what people would do today? I mean, this absolutely was something worth bragging about. But Paul had not previously shared his experience, and in here he does so only reluctantly because he was concerned others would think too highly of him. While the false teachers were concerned people weren't thinking enough about them, Paul was concerned that they would think too much of him. He wanted the Corinthians to focus on the gospel and the Savior, not on the messenger. He knew the less attention he drew to himself, the more effective his witness to the message of Christ crucified would be. 
Regardless of how great a personal claim is made to some incredible experience, Paul knew that nothing could replace conduct and speech as indications of truly following Christ. I mean, let's be honest this morning. We are all our biggest fan. And so we must guard against the temptation to do or say things in order to make ourselves look good. We're either living for the approval of God, like Paul, or the approval of others, like the false teachers. And if we're driven by what God thinks of us, we will not have to try to impress others. A second danger here we should avoid is the pursuit of ecstatic spiritual experiences. The pursuit of ecstatic spiritual experiences. It's really significant here to note that the authority of the church is not based on euphoric mystical experiences. It's based on the actions and words of its leaders. And Paul believed that the subjective individual nature of his experience, which he didn't even pursue this, right? It just happened to him. He realized it was of no profit to others and therefore was unimportant for his ministry. Otherwise, he would have shared it repeatedly. Paul does not boast in his spiritual experiences, but in the Christ who died for his sins and sustains him in the midst of suffering. One commentator noted well that when God makes himself known for the salvation of his people and the judgment of the world, he does not do so mystically in the private experience of the individual. Rather, God's self-revelation takes place historically in the redemptive events that take place in space and time as they are, as they are interpreted and reflected on in the scriptures. See, God has revealed himself in his word. And so we must pursue the ordinary spiritual discipline of encountering God there as we read, respond in prayer, and experience its faithful ministry in the local church. If one's devotion to Jesus is determined by fresh experiences, experiences of spiritual ecstasy, his growth in Christ will consistently struggle. Because as one author has insightfully noted, the sensation of being overpowered by God will need to steadily intensify, like a drug addiction that requires larger and larger doses to satisfy. The ordinary will give way to the unusual. The unusual will surrender to the extreme. The extreme will topple to the ridiculous. And often the inevitable consequence is spiritual emptiness. We ought to praise God for the extraordinary spiritual experiences that may come from time to time, but we shouldn't expect them or pursue them. God works primarily through the ordinary, not the spectacular. Well, after sharing this mountaintop experience, Paul proceeds to talk about his life in the valley. The theme of power and weakness runs as a thread throughout this entire letter. 
reaching probably its most powerful expression here in verses 7 through 10. So as we consider these verses this morning, we're going to seek to answer three questions. What is weakness? Where does it come from? And why should we boast in it? Follow along as I read, starting at verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. First question to consider. What does this text tell us weakness is? And the first description of weakness we see here is Paul's thorn in the flesh. Some have speculated that the thorn was opposition or persecution from adversaries. Others suggest a psychological ailment like anxiety, depression, despair, doubt, or even some type of temptation. Particularly relevant this time of year, linguistic scholars at a Christian research university recently pinpointed Paul's thorn to a reference to be a reference to the seasonal pop ballad Last Christmas by the English duo Wham. They note ridiculous lyrics, repetitive synth melody, George Michael's voice, the fact that it's played nonstop for a full month every year, it has all the required elements of a messenger of Satan sent to torment the apostle. a little Christian satire from the Babylonian Bee I couldn't resist sharing. And we can thank Rich and Aaron for sending it to me. <clears throat> Most likely the thorn was some type of bodily ailment. Epilepsy, some sort of vision or eye issue, speech impediment, malaria, leprosy, debilitating migraine headaches have all been suggested. But we don't know. You know, and it's probably a good thing that we don't know, because not knowing specifically what it was makes any of our physical sufferings relatable to it. What we do know is that Paul's thorn came to him after his surpassingly great revelations and in consequence of them. So we can assume that he experienced this thorn for the previous 14 years. And we can safely conclude, I think, that Paul's thorn annoyed him regularly and intensely. It was debilitating and very likely humiliating. Beyond this unnamed ailment, Paul further describes weakness in verse 10 as insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I think the, the idea of weakness here in our text is summed up really well by Piper 
who says weaknesses are not sins, but experiences and circumstances that are hard to bear and that we can't remove, either because they are beyond our control or love dictates we not return evil for evil. Our second question, where do weaknesses come from? Paul here calls his thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan given to harass him. So one clear answer is that some weaknesses come from Satan. But Satan isn't the only one at work here. Paul says in verse 7, a thorn was given me. And that verb in the Greek is almost certainly an instance instance of the so-called divine passive, which means it was given to him by God. Although the thorn was Satan's work, it was God who allowed it. Just as God was the one who was responsible for the ecstasy of Paul's rapture to the third heaven, God was also responsible for the agony of his thorn. Luther said, there's a devil, but we must remember that he is God's devil. And just as we see in the story of Job, God is sovereign over Satan. And here yet again, he checkmates Satan and thwarts his efforts to hinder the advance of the gospel through Paul. What is sent to torment Paul is transformed by God into a means of proclaiming Christ's power and grace. So the thorn is not just the work of Satan to destroy. It's the work of God to save. As Joseph's brothers told, as Joseph told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And God always wins. And as Romans 8.28 says, God works all things, even our weaknesses, together for good, which is his sanctifying purposes, which always prevail over Satan's purposes, as we will see more clearly in our final question. Which is, why should we boast in our weakness? Up to this part of the, 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 the context, So Paul's really, really hesitant to boast. He goes out of his way to say, I don't want to do this, and I'm not going to do it like you. But that's gone. In verse 9, Paul's hesitation to boast is gone. His shyness has totally evaporated. Paul has found something here that he boasts in gladly, with total enthusiasm. His weakness seems a little bit crazy, doesn't it? Does that make any sense at all? Boast in weakness? Why would we do that? And how is it even possible? Well, through the eyes of the world, it makes no sense and actually is impossible. But, but do you remember what Brian read to us this morning from 1 Corinthians 1? God's ways are not our ways. And he has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that people would boast in him and not in themselves. So seeing what God is doing in our weakness radically changes our perspective and allows us to see it not as something to avoid at all costs, 
but as something to be embraced. Not because we like it, but because God is working in it for our good. What is He doing in our weakness? Why should we boast in it? Two things here from our text. The first reason we should boast in our weakness is because it destroys our pride. Twice in verse 7, Paul states that the thorn was given him by God to keep him from becoming conceited. He repeats it. It's there twice. As one commentator noted, God brought the elated Paul down to earth and pinned him there with a thorn. I don't think this means that every weakness in our lives is the Lord's discipline or rebuke for pride. But it does mean that every hardship can be a gift from God to either humble us or to keep us humble. I would agree with the conclusion that there is no enemy in our lives so sinister, so stubborn, or so strong as our pride. We are, we're more prideful than we can possibly imagine. I know that I am. And it's a little bit scary to even think about. We are full of self-reliance, self-regard, self-conceit. We live to be recognized, and we like to think of ourselves as better than others. We ought to be able to confess together that we are in need of so much humbling from the Lord's gracious hand. And given how bad pride is, Calvin said that it cannot be cured except by poison. So we can conclude here that being harassed by a messenger of Satan and experiencing a weakness of some sort is better than being ruined by pride. God was gracious to give Paul to that God was gracious to Paul to give him a thorn that would destroy his pride because in God's eyes humility is more important than comfort and freedom from pain. So why should we boast in our weakness? First, because God gives it to us to destroy our pride. And the second reason we should boast in our weakness is because it glorifies Jesus Christ. It glorifies Jesus Christ. Even though God was working through Paul's thorn for good, it was still a bad thing. We, we shouldn't deny that and candy coat it in any way. What Paul was experiencing here, his weaknesses were bad. And so he pleaded with the Lord three times to remove it. This parallels Jesus' threefold prayer to the Father in Gethsemane that the cup of suffering be removed. And as the Father did not remove Christ's cup of suffering, he does not take away Paul's thorn. There would be no quick fix miracle, but the prayer would be answered. The prayer would be answered, but just not in the way that Paul had wished. Paul's prayer was answered not by his deliverance from the affliction, but by his receiving the necessary grace to bear it along with the very power of Christ. So what Paul received was actually far greater and more profound 
than what he asked for. So whenever Christ says no to our desperate and passionate pleadings to remove a weakness, the no is loaded with his perfect compassion, goodness, and love. His answers to our prayers are never negative, except in a superficial sense, because they ultimately are fully positive, bringing God's unending blessing. Last week in Colossians 1.23, we considered that since the gospel, the, the good news of God's grace for us in Christ, is something we must persist in and hold on to all our lives, we don't ever move past it. We don't move beyond the gospel. We need it every single day. And here is an example of that very point. God's grace is not just His unmerited favor that saves us and then we somehow graduate from. No, the very same grace that was sufficient enough to save us is the grace sufficient enough to sustain us in all our weaknesses. It's all that we need every day of our lives. Charles Spurgeon's powerful ministry as a preacher in London was embedded in a life of emotional and physical suffering that included bouts of depression, debilitating gout, and poisonous slander from others, including even some pastors. Some of us had the privilege of visiting his library at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City this past summer, and we were able to hear of some of these things that he experienced. He experienced much weakness. And I found his reflections on this promise in verse 9 to be so very encouraging. He said, At this moment, and at all moments, which shall ever occur between now and glory, the grace of God will be sufficient for you. This sufficiency is declared without any limiting words, and therefore I understand the passage to mean that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient to uphold thee, sufficient to strengthen thee, sufficient to comfort thee, sufficiency to make thy trouble useful to thee, sufficient to enable thee to triumph over it, sufficient to bring thee out of it, sufficient to bring thee out of 10,000 like it, sufficient to bring thee home to heaven. Whatever would be good for thee, Christ's grace is sufficient to bestow. Whatever would harm thee, His grace is sufficient to avert. Whatever thou desirest, His grace is sufficient to give thee, if it be good for thee. Whatever thou wouldest avoid, His grace can shield thee from it, if so His wisdom dictate. Here let me press upon you the pleasing duty of taking home the promise personally at this moment. For no believer here need be under any fear since for him also at this very instant the grace of the Lord Jesus is sufficient. In addition to saying his grace was sufficient, Jesus told Paul that his power is made perfect in weakness. I don't think there's really much of a difference between Christ's grace and his power as, as if he was giving Paul two different things. Christ's grace is his power. 
the weaknesses Paul lists here are passive. So, so he's not seeking to suffer. So his point here is not that the weaker he is, the stronger he is. I mean, if that was the case, then it would make sense to seek as much suffering as possible so that we could know more and more of God's strength. Rather, Paul's point is that Christ's power is present in his suffering. Whenever and wherever and however such suffering, God should choose to send his way. Now, of course, God is powerful enough to remove any weakness, which is why Paul prayed that he would. And and God does, right? We praise God when he chooses to remove a weakness. But the power in view here is not power to remove Paul's weakness. That's typically the kind of power we want, right? God, use use your power to change my circumstances. Now! But the power of Christ is more often seen in a changed life than in changed circumstances. And it normally happens slowly, not quickly. How is it that Christ's power is made perfect? I mean, is there something wrong with his power? Is it deficient in some way? No. No, God's power is perfect. But there's a sense here in which it's made perfect. I was really helped to consider Don Whitney's suggestion that the idea here is that God's perfect power is made perfect when we experience it and others see it as God's power. So, for example, a battery has perfect electricity in it, assuming, of course, it's a good battery, it's fully charged, right? So, Best case scenario with the battery has perfect electricity in it. But when you put it in a flashlight and turn the flashlight on, the flashlight experiences the electricity and others see the impact. Perfect electricity made perfect. I am so grateful for the way in which so many of you are displaying God's power in your weakness. And I think particularly of the blessing it's been for us to observe this in the lives of Sid and Lloyd. In different ways, they both endured great physical suffering. But what was really, really clear was that in their weakness, They experienced the sustaining power and grace of Christ. And they showed us. They showed us that it was sufficient. In their physical weakness, they were content. Up to the very end, they found deep and satisfying joy in the all-sufficient, sustaining grace of Christ. They showed us strength that could only come from Christ. And that made much of our Savior and glorified Him. So when you and I pray for God to remove a weakness but to get the same answer that Paul did, how do we respond? This is a call for faith. Can I trust God when He has the ability to remove the pain but won't? Can I trust that in His perfect plan, there is something even better for me 
and more important than my comfort. When that faith is lacking, we're in danger of pushing God away to see if we can find some other way to alleviate our pain on our terms. And even if we happen to find some temporary relief, it won't last. Doubting God's wisdom and goodness and disregarding His sovereign plan and purposes for us never, ever, ever goes well. So in all of our weaknesses, we must trust that God knows what He's doing and that all we need is the grace and power that He provides because that glorifies Christ. And as we consider this question of how it's possible for Paul and for us to boast in our weakness, we can't miss the fact that the key to everything, the key in all of this, is the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't delight and boast in his weakness because they somehow became easy all of a sudden. He did so because he accepted the way Christ's power works through his weaknesses as he sees them in light of Christ's suffering which came before. You see, there is no greater display of God's power made perfect in weakness than on the cross. For that fearful Roman sign of humiliation, defeat, judgment, and death was precisely the means by which Jesus triumphed over his foes of sin and death. Forgiveness and freedom from sin can only be ours through trusting in Christ's work on the cross. And the all-sufficient grace and power of God that Christ experienced as He suffered more than we will ever know is the only way that it's possible for us to boast in our weakness. We gather here this morning as weak people. And I know that many of you are experiencing great, great weaknesses. You didn't ask for your chronic illness or pain, cancer, depression, or fatigue. You didn't invite the ridicule of friends or ask for coworkers to think you're a joke. But you're here. You didn't ask for your family to distance themselves from you because you're a Christian. You didn't ask for a difficult relationship or no relationship at all or a rebellious child. But here you are. You didn't ask for God to take the life of a dear and precious precious loved one. But he did. So in all of your weaknesses, large or small, be encouraged from God's word that although Satan is at work harassing you, God gave you weakness for your good. He's using it to kill your pride and to glorify the all-sufficient power and grace of Jesus Christ. The world will never understand. But that is something to boast about. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the weakness of Jesus Christ. 
as his suffering in our place for our sins on the cross is our only hope of life. We thank you, Lord, for his power and grace that you give to us in abundance and so kindly allowed to rest upon us in our weakness. And Father, we ask that you'll help us. Help us to see that our deepest need and our weakness is not quick relief, but deeply rooted faith that our circumstances are part of your perfect, sovereign, and supreme plan. Help us, dear Lord, to see the valuable gift of weakened pride and the privilege that it is to glorify the all-sufficient grace and power of Christ through our weakness. Grant us, Father, the faith and grace to gladly boast in our weakness so that we may boast of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.